Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its eternal wisdom. Lord, we thank you for establishing for us preachers and teachers to expound upon that word, to make it more clearly understood to us. But we thank you that the testimony of your eternal wisdom is not contingent upon any man. We thank you that anyone who has access to your scriptures, which is all of us, has access to your mind. We thank you that you have given all of your people your spirit, which illuminates that word. So that if we were in isolation, Lord, even then we could know you. If we had your word and your spirit, we pray that we would celebrate these things. We pray that we would hold the church in high regard, but not make an idol out of those who teach us. We pray that we would always search the scriptures for truth. And that we would not delegate this responsibility in the absolute to any man, to any council, to any movement of men. Give us grace in this time as we consider these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The last time that we were together, we considered an unintentionally bad insult that amounted to an accidental compliment that was issued against our brethren in Acts 17. And at the time that it was rendered, it was effective as a pejorative, but that was only because the pagans and Christ-denying Jews that first heard it couldn't appreciate the statement in light of its being a validation of Christian virtue, which it very much was. But as viewed in Scripture by we who are Christians, this accusation of supposed wrongdoing is a cause for celebration over God's people by God's people. Because... Uh, These Christians behaved exactly as God's people should, and in so doing received exactly the right sort of response from the self-righteous religious practitioners and the pagans alike, and this came by way, of course, of the Thessalonian Jews, as was recorded in Acts 17, verses 6 and 7, and considered last time. But to remind you, Luke recounts there, these men, Paul and Silas primarily, who have upset the world, have come here also, 
and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. As I said, it's a bit like somebody levying what they believe to be a malicious insult at you, but it actually amounts to, good job, friend, you're doing everything that you set out to do and everything that you should be doing. Again, the, the three primary components of that are like prime directives of the Christian life and primary objectives. These men have upset the world. Yes, it's exactly what we come to do because the world is ruled by the God of this world, lowercase g, who is Satan, and we have come to overthrow the systems that operate in his name. So true and amen. Jason has welcomed them, yes. Yes, because they were hurting and they were being persecuted, and so he publicly identified with them because we don't leave each other to suffer alone, especially when we are suffering directly for the name of Christ. And then that last point, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. Yes, this is why we formed our first creed, which is Jesus is Lord. It was in contradiction to Caesar is Lord. We reject imperial worship in all its forms. We reject any God but Yahweh. Well, today we move from one of the unintentionally worst insults issued by the enemies of Christ toward Christ followers to saints from a certain town who would make that town's name one of the best compliments that you could give a Christian if you applied it to them. And that is the town of Berea. You may know that there are untold but very large numbers of Berean Baptist churches based upon the Berea of our text. And I don't think just Baptist, but you know, two B words in a name sort of rolls off the tongue, so I think it's especially common there. But churches of multiple denominations have claimed this as a moniker due to a desire to identify with the godly testimony of these Christians here. Beyond this, we've often heard and said to each other, be a Berean as an exhortation, or so-and-so is a Berean, spoken as a compliment to them. So let's see for ourselves what all the fuss is about and how it was that these folks acquitted themselves well enough to have become venerated examples to all believers in every age as they have. Look to verse 10. We're going to work our way through the text, exegeting and applying as we go. And then afterwards, we will make our primary point of application, which is as essential now as it, has ever has, as it ever has been, because it speaks to a truly timeless truth. Verse 10, And the brothers, led by Jason, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And it's just a couple things to note here. And the first is, by way of reminder, that they left Thessalonica under duress for the sake of the gospel, and under duress at this point seems to be the only way they ever leave anywhere, in case you haven't been paying attention, as we go through the book of Acts. Also, once more, Paul goes first to the house of Israel, doesn't he? And he is doing this consistently on account of a godly unction that I myself would be lying if I said I had ever felt personally. But this is recorded in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. He says there, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We have many men in our day who speak of hell in a flippant way and talk about wanting to go there. That doesn't mean anything because these are fools who speak of something they have no knowledge of. This man does have a knowledge of what hell is. As much of a knowledge as anybody this side of the veil ever has. And he says that he would go there if it meant that his brethren according to the flesh would not So what would a man so disposed do but prioritize his own people in this way? Thus he continues to start first in the synagogues where his people are. And you may say, well, this is discrimination. Yes, indeed it is. But it is not a godless discrimination because it does not exclude anybody from the gospel message because they are not Jews. Obviously, Paul is not forsaking the Gentiles. He is the apostle too. The Gentiles. This then is not about exclusion but priority. And this can be good and godly as it indeed was here. The Lord gives different passions to different saints. This isn't necessarily bigoted. They desire to minister especially to your own people more so than another people. Can be uh, divinely wrought in you as an instrument of the Holy Spirit designed to create fruit among a certain group using a certain saint, which is what we see happening in Paul's kinsman according to the flesh in verse 11 and into verse 12. Now these, these synagogue Jews, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. I ask you, they were more noble what? Was it nobly motioned? I was noble-minded. And then this would be a furtherance of the concept that Luke has been developing, which is that Christianity is not a leap into the dark. It is a mindful, conscious step into the light of truth. And to demonstrate this to you, that this is indeed becoming a theme, here is that same message seen through the recent example of our missionaries and the Thessalonians. Acts 17, 2 through 4. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Though here is the rub, as they say, Christian. And I, don't, I know that it doesn't comport with the contemporary romance novels that pretend to be legitimate works of Christology, but only thinking people become converted to Christianity because mindless disengagement is absent Christ and the intellectual chaos that is inerrant to it is inherently anti-Christ. Now, I have not said here only geniuses get converted, but only thinking people. To the praise of the glory of God's grace, he still saves and uses the simple things of this world and those thought unwise by the world. And the Holy Spirit still reveals these wonders to infants and we hold these treasures in earthen pots. But the treasures that we hold are all the revelations of the knowledge of God, which as knowledge must first pass through the intellect. 
And that, I think, is just incontrovertibly true, if Scripture is rightly recognized as the determiner of truth. But it is nevertheless assaulted by certain factions in our faith and those most decidedly outside of our faith who in the latter group falsely claim the name of Christ. These would include, for example, the 10 or so remaining Quakers. There's more than that, but there's not a lot of them named for an emotional response, which was quaking. And they would stand or sit around in a circle and give their general impressions about who God was and what God was doing, and that amounted to revelation for them. It's all very emotional, though. I think Roman Catholics fall into this category. They aren't recognized to occupy this position as much, but where we place the mind in priority, they often place enigmatic mysticism, and I've raised this in the past. This, I think, accounts for the resurgence of the Latin Mass. Why would English-speaking people want to go to a Mass in Latin? Well, because they don't understand it. That's the reason. There's a veil of mysticism over that, and they derive all kinds of emotions from that, all kinds of feelings of divinity or whatever. And of course, though, leading this sort of approach would be the modern charismatics and Pentecostals and word of faith proselytes. For these folks, it is all emotion all the time. And they will actually, in fact, use terms and phrases like those intellectual Christians as insults speaking of unintentional compliments. But in doing this, what they are actually doing is divorcing man from his mind. And in that, they are dehumanizing us and demeaning the work of God. Mark 12, 30 through 31, Jesus taught as a fundamental Christian maxim, you know it well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I ask you, what is represented by heart, soul, mind, and strength, respectively? What do you get when you put all those things together? How about our humanity? And if you take away any of those, you no longer have a human being made in the image of God. This is, so to speak, a whole meal that cannot be taken a la carte. It consists of the heart, which is the center and seat of human will and emotion, and also of the soul, which is the eternal immaterial us and that eternal expression of our innate natures. Strength is the force which renders unction into action and the mind is that which understands and so guides the heart and the soul and our strength. So teaching rightly the biblical emphasis upon thought and intellect is not severing the other aspects of our humanity from the holistic human. Rather, that is accomplished when mysticism and emotionalism and raw experientialism are permitted to homicide the mind. We are eternal beings, and we are not in terms of our being to be likened to frogs on a ninth grader's table in lab class that can be dissected into parts. There are three or perhaps four aspects of our humanity there expressed by our Lord in Mark 12, but these comprise a singular human nature. Okay, forgive me for another garden metaphor, but it is sort of my thing, so there's going to be a lot of these. But if you've ever potted multiple plants in the same pot, and at the end of the season when they have withered, if you've taken your hands and dug down into the soil, what has happened to the roots of each individual plant? They have combined into all of the others. If they grow in close proximity to one another, therefore coming together in one large 
root ball. And so you have multiple expressions of what has become, in a sense, one plant, inextricably linked anyhow. So inextricable that if you tried to separate these while they were still living, you would kill them. That's something of the way that these aspects of our singular nature work. And this whole nature is what Christ made new when he converted you. And he did it with each of us the way that he's done it with all of us and all the saints for all time. And that is by the scriptures through the mind. Now, you can more or less bypass the mind and go straight away to the heart. And Satan does this constantly. And we have taken note of this for unbelievers, how they feel consistently takes priority over thinking and reasoning. And that's probably why Luke stresses this to Theophilus, because this is starkly in contrast to the pagan approach to religion. Think about what pagan meditation is versus Christian meditation, perhaps. And I'm not advocating for this, but perhaps at some point in the past you went to a yoga class and not just one that was synchronized stretching one that actually did promote a sort of false pagan religion. What are they encouraging you to do uh, in encouraging you to meditate? Empty your mind, right? Empty your mind and let whatever is going to come into it, whatever you absorb from the universe or whatever, enter. That is their idea. But reaching the heart with the gospel requires that the mind be engaged because the gospel is a message of truth, and before truth is felt, it must be understood and believed. And when I say before, I mean logically, not chronologically. These things are synonymous. Understanding Christ and the emotion of loving Christ is experienced at the same time. But my point is that you must understand him properly or else you cannot feel him truly. Furthermore, what the charismatics and the like are doing in making everything emotion and nothing thought is in fact denigrating our expression of emotions to something much more akin to the experience of animals than it is to men. Their claim is that they are elevating human emotion, those that we stodgy Pharisees have discarded, but really they are greatly diminishing the depths of our emotion by disconnecting these from the mind. Because if the mind is not governing the emotions, then what must be? But instinct and impulse, which means that people and pets now emote under essentially the same terms. So the conclusion is this, to this thought. I will embrace what has been called by our forefathers in the faith, experimental religion, and I always have. The experience of religion is critical. One of the most beautiful passages in Scripture is the account of the former prostitute in Luke 7. According to the usage of the verb, has not actually come there for forgiveness. You recall her. She weeps so profusely that she is able to clean the Lord's feet with her tears and her hair. She didn't come there for forgiveness. She'd already had it. Evidently, she'd heard that message in the days preceding that. She came there to express gratitude. The idea that you could read that account and think that when God saves a man, he doesn't save the emotions of that man. He doesn't redeem those is absurd. You can also consider the example of Peter, who jumps out of that boat. And I have likened that many times to the way that a toddler hears his father crack open the door and runs. That is love. 
That is abounding emotion. And a Christian life that is bankrupt of that is something sub-Christian. But I will not be told at the same time that emotion unguided by the truth is godly. The woman who so wept in Luke 7 did so for the sake of grace, because obviously she understood the grace that she had been given, thus she was so moved. Peter leapt from the boat for the sake of love, because he knew Jesus, and he knew him whom he was loving and how worthy he was of love. About 200 years ago, a Presbyterian minister named Robert Burns framed the issue thusly. Quote, There are two extremes into which professing Christians of the present day are very apt to fall. While one class adopts a system of doctrinal sentiments without any practical regard to their influence on the heart and on the life, others satisfy themselves with a simple performance of social duties into the religious scheme of the former. There enter few, if any, of those holy affections and little of that sublime practical virtue which the gospel requires into the scheme of the latter. There enter few of the leading principles of the Christian revelation and a very small portion of that spirituality of sentiment and of feeling which constitutes the very essence of vital godliness the religion of both is alike cold and inefficient. Written two centuries ago, but might as well have been written yesterday. The point is, Christian, be guilty of neither. Let love and holy affection feed your mind first, and then let that flow to all aspects of your humanity, heart, soul, mind, and strength, as clearly as happened with these noble-minded saints in Berea. But these more noble-minded Jews, now Christians, were not the only ones who were noble-minded by the grace of God in this account, so they were not the only ones saved by the grace of God in this account. Continuing in verse 12, they were converted along with not a few prominent Greek women and men. There is that same phrasing again, which we just encountered previously with the Thessalonian women of prominence, not a few, meaning many. Many were converted. And the priority here is given to the women, thus they are mentioned first. And that priority, I think, is a reflection of the greater number of women versus that of the men. So you have here, who's saving? Who is doing the saving? It is the Holy Spirit of God who is applying the redemptive work of the Son consistent with the plan of the Father. So then it would be the third person of the Trinity and the second and the first, prioritizing women yet again. Now, a feminist, God most certainly is not. But a lover of the souls of his image bearers of the female kind, he most certainly is. And he continues to demonstrate this over and over and over again to the praise of the glory of his grace. And while I say God is not a feminist, his word sure is making it hard for me to believe the feminist claims that God in the Bible demeans women. God created women, and he is the one who makes them new. But moving forward in this narrative and entering stage left are the antagonists who hate the souls of women and men and so seek to steal the seeds that have here been sown. Verse 13 but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, shaking up and disturbing the crowds. 
Now, there is a point that I want to make here, and I will make it briefly, but I do want us to ask and answer the question of what does the ministry of an effective minister look like practically as it plays out in the world which is fallen? And I want to answer this question because this book is shouting the answer to us. Outside of Christ, there has never been a more effective minister of the gospel than Paul. Prior to Paul and prior to the age of the apostles and the old covenant, I would argue that in terms of throwing down pagan strongholds with the message of repentance and faith, the greatest prophet ever was the most reluctant ever, and his name was Jonah. Lord used him obviously to overthrow Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, and to convert hundreds of thousands of souls. But Paul here is conquering Nineveh after Nineveh after Nineveh for Christ and by the power of Christ. And here is what that unprecedented effectiveness has brought him recently in our study. Here is a recap of this satanic response to the most successful missionary journey in the history of, I say, any religion, period, but taken on behalf of the only true religion. To recap, relatively recent events. On Cyprus, Paul was opposed by the false prophet Bar-Jesus. Leaving there, he was accosted by blaspheming Jews in Pisidian Antioch who drove him and his fellow missionaries out of their district. In Iconium, the Jews stirred up and embittered the Gentiles against him. Then they fled to Lystra, where Paul was stoned and believed to be dead. Then there was the opposition to Paul that culminated in the Jerusalem Council. Then John Mark defected and Barnabas left and Paul had to form a whole new missionary team. Then to Philippi, where they were beaten and imprisoned. Then to Thessalonica, where he was hidden from the authorities and evacuated of necessity for his own safety. Now this in Berea, verse 13 again. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, shaking up and disturbing the crowds. And this to the effect of verses 14 and 15. Then immediately the brothers sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. This has turned into something like guerrilla warfare. Fight, run, hide. Fight, run, hide. Fight, run, hide. Ah, now don't misunderstand me or what's happening. Satan is losing this war and he is losing it badly. All of his efforts are just serving to aggressively cast the seeds of the gospel across the ancient world. Because Paul just keeps doing the same thing. And he doesn't leave a place without a witness. You have the Lord raising people up. And in every town, he leaves a remnant. And then that seed grows into a church. And then this seed grows into a church. I have likened this process to, to something along the lines of a brush fire where there is uh, dry tinder all around. You don't try to stomp that out. Because if you do, you just throw sparks everywhere else. And everywhere a spark lands, it ignites. Because everything is prying for the burning. That's exactly what's happening here. That's what Satan gets for all of his trouble. All the worldly systems are on fire. And they will all ultimately in the end burn down. But what a price Paul is paying for this. 
Unlike those so many Christians in our day, this is exactly what Paul signed up for. Because though his suffering is extreme in relation to other believers, Christ taught him what is true for all of us, and that is that confrontation and its subsequent suffering is not a feature of this life. It is the nature of this life as it is experienced in this fallen world. Ergo, from the man himself, Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, Paul said, through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. And he himself is a living testimony of this. And on the basis of this, I do want to encourage once more all of you who are present now to be honest about your present condition before the future condition of this society or your changed circumstances shows you to be a liar in terms of your profession of faith. If you are not a Christian, you are welcome here. I want to make that very clear to you. As long as you don't sow seeds of discord, as long as you don't mean to do us harm or attempt to, you may stay here as long as you like. What I'm asking from you is that you tell the truth. Because this group of people, they deserve better than to lean on you when times get tough and when intense persecution comes, and it is coming, only for you to collapse when they need you the most. That I do not receive well. That I find despicable. That is a thing that greatly dishonors the Lord. If you're going to defect, do it now. And with all our hearts, we welcome you to continue to come here. And this also gives us the benefit of being able to pray for you. We can't pray for you rightly if we think that you're one of us because you live a false life like a chameleon, shrouded behind barriers of lies. Don't put us in a position to where we rely upon you and then... Unlike Jason, you contribute to the persecution instead of helping us through it. Christ was uniquely strong to handle what Peter did to him. And the rest of us, though we are upheld by him, are of much weaker stuff than he. And on behalf of these people, please spare them the pain of this. Now, besides all this, I have just one remaining point of application. And it is a doctrine that has been historically known by different names, which you're about to see the fundamentalist Baptist in me come out, which is still alive. This is the I in the acronym that's often applied to Baptist, and it is individual soul liberty. If you've not heard this term, as I imagine many of you have not, here is that doctrine succinctly explained by an outlet that I found to be helpful. Quote, the individual soul is answerable to God Almighty and to him alone. This precludes giving up that independency to a pope, a priest, a system, an organization, a convention, a fellowship, an association, or any other human being. None of these are given the authority to interpose anything whatsoever between the individual believer and God concerning any matter of faith, and I would add vis-a-vis the scriptures, obviously. Now, this doctrine doesn't negate the role and necessity of elders to teach you 
or fellow Christians to disciple you or the local church to guide you and provide the essential framework for the exercise of your Christian faith. It also does not negate my accountability before God with regard to what I teach you, which is to say that James 3.1 still holds for me, which states, Do not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. And there are many more warnings for me besides this, and I can shirk none of them, and as God is my witness, I am not trying to. But the reality of individual soul liberty does mean that, well, I will answer to God for you. You will also answer for yourself when you stand before him. And there will be in that day no justification of any false beliefs on your part consisting of any form of, well, my pastor said, and so I am absolved for believing. No, you won't be. Acts 17, verses 11 and 12. Again, now these Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with not a few prominent Greek women and men. I wonder if Paul were displaced in this account by a great many pastors in our present day, if the characterization of these Bereans for this kind of questioning wouldn't be something quite other than noble-minded. Perhaps instead they would have been described as prideful, unlearned, stiff-necked, full of vain pretensions. Maybe that would have been accompanied with some version of, don't you know who I am? Indeed, I think so. Matter of fact, I know so, because I've witnessed this sort of thing many times. I think that what most pastors want to hear, if they were honest, which in this event they are not, but I think if they were honest, what they really want to hear said to them by those that they teach is something much more like what was said to Herod back in chapter 12, which if you remember was the voice of a God and not a man. But they are just men. And so they speak with no greater authority than any other man if those other men quote and properly apply scripture. And even if he does all of this as he should, even if he is the consummate exegete and he is unlike the man that is presently speaking to you, therefore never committing any error whatsoever, the people of God still have a responsibility to take what they hear from him and search the scriptures for themselves, knowing that as James 3, 1 holds true for me, 2 Corinthians 5, 10 holds true for all of you. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And as I said, that there were many more verses besides James 3, 1 that attested to my accountability before God with respect to what all of you believe based upon what I have taught, there are also many more verses besides 2 Corinthians 5.10 that attest to the fact that you are too because you have a Bible. In fact, you probably have 35 Bibles. You literally carry a Bible around with you in your phone. You represent the most Bibled group of people in the history of the human race. And besides this profound advantage. You also have the Holy Spirit of God to illuminate that word to you. Therefore, you have no excuse. I think of a certain matter in particular in my own life. 
in which I turned away from the counsel of the Lord that has caused me profound pain. And there's a part of me that wants to put that off on my pastors, the ones that I was under as a child. But the more honest part of me always wins out. I had every advantage. I had every means of knowing, besides a church that was faithful in that matter, and I neglected the word because I wanted to. That's the truth. They will give an account to God for what they did not teach, and I will give an account for God to God for what I did not study. I'll, for my part, as your pastor, put this in the context of this particular church, I pray for your love, but I don't want any part of anybody's pretensions of pastoral infallibility. Leave that concept to the papists. Don't try to Protestantize it and bring it in here. As it pertains to me, behold, the voice of a man and only a man and nothing more than a man. You know what you get actually when you hold to pastoral infallibility? You get what just happened at Alistair Begg's church this past week. Okay, the man missteps, perhaps. He says that Christians can not only attend uh, sodomite or homosexual weddings and trans weddings, but they can also bring a gift. They can sit there not as passive observants, but as active witnesses, as is stated in the law, as what you're doing. But he sent me an article this week recognizing that fact in the company of all these witnesses. He says this, this is demonstrably false. There's no way to come to this conclusion. He has in the meantime been rebuked publicly by many outlets which have the responsibility to do that. They have that kind of a voice. I don't need to do that because others are already doing it. He's been dropped from MacArthur's conference. He's been dropped from a Ligonier conference. You know, there's this saying in the world where there is smoke, there is fire. Be very careful about applying that to ministries, especially in light of what we're learning. There's a lot of smoke coming from Paul's ministry, right? But the kind of fire that's burning is the right kind of fire. However, there's smoke coming from the wrong kind of people when it comes to this. These are solid men that are rebuking Alistair Begg. And yet he gets up in front of his congregation and he gives an exceedingly convoluted and nuanced justification for saying the thing that he has said, which is so false. And what does the congregation do? They all clap. That is a practical denial of the spirit that you see at work in the Bereans in our text. It's very common. And it's very easy to defer this profound right and responsibility to a pastor for a lot of good reasons, actually. Because a very sweet relationship should exist between you and your pastor, especially if you have been in a congregation for a while and he is a good shepherd. You have been in the ash heap at various different points and he has been there with you and he has helped you as you scrape your wounds 
when you go through something like that with people, there is cultivated by those experiences a very, very strong bond. Praise the Lord for that. But if the foundation for that relationship ever becomes anything other than the word, then you have a responsibility to use that relationship to correct him because he is not God. And if you love him as he has loved you, then you will do that for him. You will not leave him in his error. Again, I will incur a stricter judgment. We will all incur a stricter judgment. So why don't you love us enough in that circumstance to give us a hand out? Measure of love is very often determined by how willing the people doing the loving are to make themselves uncomfortable. I don't need yes men. Nobody else does either. They want them. We don't need them. I don't need people who want to pick fights either for no reason. Just so we're clear. If you have an actual reason to correct me, do not withhold that correction from me because I have become something of an idol to you. What an absurdity. Here's the bottom line for you, Christian, in the context of this church again specifically. I do the best that I can to represent God's word accurately. To the point, um, you know, well, I cannot make the statement uh, truly that Paul did in Romans 9. I can tell you truly that I would really genuinely rather the Lord strike me dead than to get up here and preach to you on some cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, something that is false and will therefore damage your soul. I'd, I'd rather die. Absolutely. And it's not just because I understand that what's coming next for me is very much better than what I have here. I'd rather be struck down. But I am a nobody from nowhere, and I am certainly nobody that anybody should be entrusting their souls to in an absolute way. I do hope that I have proven myself trustworthy, but a trustworthy man, which is never more than a man, unless you're talking about the God-man, which I am most certainly not. Paul, who wrote scripture. Paul, who wrote an enormous amount of the New Testament, praises these people for not treating him as infallible. How much more praiseworthy are you if you don't treat me that way, nor any other man that you may ever sit under in your lives? And it was not just Paul who had this disposition with respect to what we are learning now. Perhaps the most profound statement on the supremacy of Scripture over the testimony of men actually comes from Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to take you through this briefly. But I want you to see the juxtaposition here between Peter's eyewitness and the Old Testament canon. Let me show you. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 16. We did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now that is a reference, of course, to the transfiguration. 
which they saw with their own eyes. That time when the veil of the Lord Jesus's humanity was taken down for a moment and they saw the radiance of his deity as they never had before. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard that audible voice of God calling out from the heavens with their own ears. But watch how he ranks his own eyewitness testimony as compared to Scripture. Continuing in verse 19, And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you all do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. Trust the sacred text, says Peter, more than you trust me. I saw what I saw, but you read what you read. And the two things had better line up. Or what I say I saw is false. That Peter's eyewitness of the unveiling of God's glory in the Son is not greater than Scripture. Nor Paul's testimony in preaching, who personally wrote Scripture. Then how can any man's testimony be raised over the word of God? even if he purports to testify of Scripture. We're all fallible, the best of us. And there's a special temptation for those of us who are exceptionally good at debate. And it is to do what Alistair Begg did this week. That was an excellent... Um, loquacious verbose, compelling, persuasive pile of nonsense. That's what it was. That's a challenge of being very, very good with words. You can use those words to twist truth and not even know that you're doing it. And the people that are hearing you can be very persuaded by what you're saying because you are so good at saying it. But man can also be intentionally wrong. There are those. I think in this, there is an analogy to be made from Nehemiah and the building of the wall that is instructive concerning the dynamic between teaching elders and laity when it comes to authority and responsibility. Who oversaw the building of the wall? Was Nehemiah. Who built each individual section? Families. The families who were closest to that particular section. Yeah, so they built the section of the wall that was most directly responsible for their safety and their security. I think it's a pretty good metaphor here. I expound the word week in, week out, in private counseling, personal discipleship, I give you this, but you build that section of the wall that most directly protects you and your family. You are responsible to do this, knowing that even I, somebody in my position, may fall, and you are responsible to not allow yours to fall with me, the ones that the Lord has given you to protect.
Every man is just a man. You'll stand before God and give an account for your faith. We all just sang a song prior to this. Those lyrics, I think, provide a good end for us. Speak, O Lord. As we come to you to receive the food of your holy word, take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ may be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us. Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility, test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity and by grace we'll stand on your promises, and by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. He has spoken to me as your pastor and to Dan as your other pastor in his word. And he has spoken to us as a local church. And he has spoken to you as individual Christians. And you, Christian, are to hear, to hearken to, to discern, and to heed his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the transcendence of your word. We thank you that we are not left to the interpretation of a single man or any man. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the saints that has been handed down to us, for the faith of our forefathers, for the consistency of their doctrine, and for all that has been delivered to us faithfully. And we thank you that we can test all of these things by the standard of your word and come to the same conclusions by it. We are taught by history. We are taught by tradition. And we love these things, but we are not slaves to them. I pray that these people would take seriously their responsibility to know your word for themselves. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.